This evening's talk has a title called Just As It Is. After six years of engaging in extreme ascetic practices and finding that, in fact, they weren't bringing the liberation of heart, the liberation of mind that he was seeking, it said that the bodhisattva asked himself, could there be another path to enlightenment? In reflection with this inner questioning, an image, the memory of a particular experience from his childhood appeared to Siddhartha. He remembered a particular spring day when he was a boy of six. That morning, his father had taken him to the spring plowing festival, a time each year when the men in the community, rich and poor alike, came together for a day of plowing up the earth, an annual ritual marking the beginning of the spring planting season. Young Siddhartha was seated comfortably and quietly under a sweet-smelling rose apple tree. Nothing really on his mind. Observing the scene that was unfolding before him with the very open, alert, and unfettered attention that children sometimes give to things. In those moments of not wanting anything, of not being afraid of anything, He was aware of the earth breaking open in even wave-like furrows. And he noticed the heat shimmering up off the freshly opened earth. He was aware of the shining on the sweating faces and the straining bodies of the men and the oxen. And he noticed the flash and the sparkling coming off from the sunlight off the oxen's yoke and the harnesses and the horns. He felt the plodding rhythm of the oxen's hoofs and the cowbells ringing and rolling on and on and on. All of this happening amidst the strong, sharp shouts of the men as they were working. He also heard the beautiful, sweet songs of the birds, as well as the shrill cries of the birds as they dove and they pecked and devoured the swarming insects, the grubs, the worms, and the broken bodies of the mice left out on the upturned earth. All of this laboring, devouring, struggling, suffering, dying, endlessly going on beneath and right along with the gaiety, the joy, the beauty of that spring festival day. 
All of this entered into young Siddhartha's heart and mind as he sat alone under the tree, deeply experiencing and intuitively reflecting on the scene that was happening before him. And in his heart, finding no resistance, no tension, no inner conflict, nothing to add, nothing to take away, no picking and choosing. As he silently sat still, still and secluded from sensual pleasures, secluded from unwholesome states of mind, his mind calm, still, and clearly focused, taking all of this in without prejudice, without attachment, he experienced a joy, a sweet pleasure, a happiness that wasn't born out of desire for or clinging to anything. And in his young mind, a deep intuitive understanding was seated. As a young man, in remembering this experience from his childhood, the thought occurred, could this be the path to enlightenment? And it's said that following on the memory of this joyful and insightful experience, that the bodhisattva became filled with energy and filled with assurance that this, in fact, was the path to liberation. And he resolved to sit quietly and to press forward in deep meditation until he reached full understanding, until he reached true freedom. This was a turning point for the Buddha-to-be in his quest for enlightenment, a change in his relationship to suffering and his evaluation of pleasure. At that most important point of turning in his quest for liberation, Siddhartha realized that the confusion, the misunderstanding, the delusion, the greed, anger, anguish, hatred, all of the dark and afflictive states of mind wouldn't be, couldn't be purified or banished or released, let go of or relinquished by creating hardships for himself and then putting up with or living through or toughing it out in relationship to these self-inflicted hardships or by trying to lose one's self in them. Potentially a certain kind of strength might be gained, but the light at the end of the tunnel, so to say, would never be seen, felt, or known 
with this way. Siddhartha realized that pleasure was no longer to be feared, no longer to be banished through the practice of extreme austerities, that this would never bring a sustaining sense of well-being. He understood that when pleasure is born internally, with a mind, with a heart, that's deeply concentrated, secluded, free from mental and bodily hindrances, the hindrances of lethargy, restlessness, greed, clinging, fear, free from the various permutations of aversion, (coughs) confusion, doubt. He understood that when pleasure is born of seclusion, and detachment, that it's not only okay, but that it's valuable, and that it's a necessary accompaniment along the path of awakening. And that, in fact, it points to the sustaining happiness of a heart, a mind, that's no longer run by the energies of greed, clinging, fear, judgment, anger, and confusion. As a child, this natural state of an undisturbed mind is something that Siddhartha wandered into, so to say. The world outside going on just as it is. Thoughts and feelings arising, and changing, coming and going. No different in these moments than anything else in the world. Nothing to agree with, nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to, nothing to pick and choose, inside or outside. And yet this natural state of an undisturbed mind isn't so easy to wander into for most of us, as you've probably noticed. We so often have a mind that's made up, made up about how it's supposed to be or how it isn't supposed to be, what's good, what's bad, what we must have or what we must not have in order to be happy even in order to practice. And we so often have a mind made up about what we most definitely know is true and what we most definitely know isn't true. A mind made up. A mind that, in fact, clings to what it's made up. This is what prevents us from directly clearly and honestly meeting the moment we're in. Keeping us in conflict. Keeping us from the possibility of wandering into the natural state of an undisturbed mind. This, in essence, is the cause of our anguish, the cause of our confusion, 
This, in essence, is the cause of dukkha, the cause of suffering. There is an early Chinese Buddhist teaching, a long poem by Sengan, that speaks of this with great wisdom and clarity. So I'd like to share just a few stanzas of it and really uh, allowing it in as a practice instruction. The great way is not difficult if you just don't pick and choose. When love and hate are both absent, love meaning attachment, clinging in this case, when love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the dis-ease of the mind. The way is perfect like vast space, where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is true. It is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we don't see the true nature of things. When the mind exists undisturbed in the way, nothing can offend. And when a thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. When no discriminating thoughts arise, the old mind ceases to exist. Just let things be their own way, and there will be neither coming nor going. Obey the nature of things, your own nature, and you will walk freely and undisturbed. The great way is not difficult if you just don't pick and choose. So, these preferences of ours, our constant picking and choosing, and most of us being um, quite attached to our preferences, our choices, and carrying a deep-seated underlying hope that if we try hard enough, if we think the right way, prefer the right thing, remove the irritant, choose intelligently that things, people, particular situations, that life will do what we want it to do or not do what we don't want it to do. And that with certain conditions being particular ways that are, of course, our preferences, that we'll be happy. along with this hope that I think actually borders on a belief for many, many people. There's also a a deep-seated underlying fear 
the other side of which is actually wisdom. That life just does what it does. That essentially it's unmanageable, ungovernable. That essentially we have no control over how it is. When in our practice we begin to look into and begin to see our preferences and the activity in the mind of picking and choosing, to look into the conditioned mind, the with mind, the mind with conditions, seeing this phenomena occurring without getting seduced into the content, when we touch this, we're really actually seeing into the cause of anguish, the cause of confusion, the cause of suffering. When in our practice we begin to look into and see the underlying fear of things essentially being unmanageable, out of our control, again, without getting seduced into the content of whatever stories or considerations might be surrounding the fear, we're actually then potentially taking a step in the direction of wisdom, stepping into the territory of truth, the territory of just how it is. And stepping into the territory of truth asks us to let go of our cherished, hoped-for map, the without map, the without mind, to be without these sought-after conditions for a moment, a mind for a moment without conditions willing to simply be with, look into, and see it, whatever it is, just as it is. I found it to be both amazing and totally ordinary in the way that these illuminations can present themselves through our formal practice and in our life as our practice, both inside retreat and outside of the retreat setting. So here we are in retreat. You're sitting for 45 minutes, an hour. Calm, tranquility, A degree of stillness and sweetness is developing and being known. And then the thought coming through. Oh, this is good. This is really good. I'll just stay here for another hour or maybe even more. And then strong bodily pain. Sensations starting up the leg. 
and maybe you continue to hold tightly to your agenda, your hope, your preference to sit another hour and get through the pain, put up with it, tough it out, find a way to get rid of it, try to ignore it, or maybe pretend it's not there so that you can meet your preference, so that you can meet your goal. This relationship to pain makes it a thing, something solid, substantial, a concept, and something to control so that you can continue with what you've chosen to do the thing that you think will lead to your awakening, sitting another hour. Or maybe you relate to the pain via the without mind, a mind not made up, without preferences, without picking and choosing, without the concept of pain even. There might be the open-hearted receptivity to see what is this thing I want to get away from or that I want to get away from me. You might notice, for instance, that when your leg moves even just a tiny bit, the discomfort completely disappears. And then there's the sudden recognition of the insubstantiality of the seeming solidity of pain, rather than what might be a habitual thought of, oh, thank goodness that's gone. Or you might simply, directly, and intimately connect with what is. Seeing all the varying sensations occurring in your leg, And notice them changing, moving, recognizing that this sit right now is a meditation with changing sensations. Nothing solid, nothing static, no preference, no picking and choosing in those moments, and no time frame. Just being with. Seeing and knowing experience just as it is. This relationship to experience, to any phenomena that arises in the body-mind continuum, the without-mind relationship, the without-mind relationship to things, to experience, just the right ground for wisdom to sprout up and blossom. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything.
in our practice, in our life as our practice. Recognizing the mind that's made up, the mind that's clinging. Recognizing this sets the stage for the recognition and the realization of the cause of suffering. And the very natural movement of the heart, of the mind, to let go, to soften, to open, and to simply relinquish the contraction of clinging. I think just about everybody, all of us, have ideas, have opinions, concepts uh, about how it is, how it's supposed to be, what's true, what's good, what's good and will make you happy, what's bad and will make you miserable or make you angry or make you sad. If you hold tightly to these opinions, these concepts, they prevent you from meeting the moment you're in. What if events don't have to be anything other than what they are? Just let things be their own way, and there will be neither coming nor going. Obey the nature of things, your own nature, and you will walk freely and undisturbed. For instance, the thought of and the experience of anicca, impermanence. It's very often conceived of and related to with the mind of resistance, fear, rage, despondency, And as I uh, mentioned, I think last week or sometime in the recent past, what about the truth if there was no change? No change, no life. Can you imagine what it would be like if nothing ever changed? It would be an incredible nightmare. The worst nightmare if nothing ever changed. So we might consider a different relationship than we may have to Anicca. Maybe we could consider celebrating Anicca. Our idea that certain events are bad and are supposed to make us miserable or sad or angry might not be true. In uh, 1985, my house burned down, burned down to the ground. Fortunately, no one was there when it happened, and my three adult sons and I were away visiting my mother, who was living in Mexico at the time. A few days after we'd arrived at my mother's house, I received a phone call from a friend who lived down the road from our house in the Michigan woods. He called to tell me that my house had burned down to the ground. Now, my first response, I said, you're kidding. So a little denial there, you know. (laughs) But of course, who would call a friend up thousands of miles away 
at Christmas time and tell them that their house burned down to the ground as a joke, you know. <laughs> so I very quickly believed what he said. We had a very brief conversation, and I hung up the phone, and I burst into tears, cried very hard for about 15 minutes, and my mother was standing right next to me uh, in the kitchen and just put her arms around me, didn't ask any questions, and just let me cry. And then um, my brother, who was also visiting during that holiday time, my brother and I sat down and had a conversation for about two hours. By the end of that two-hour conversation, what had appeared to be a tragedy turned out to be a gift. I didn't have any things to hold me, bind me anymore. The spiritual path had literally burned its way open for me. And as some of you may know, um, in Asian countries, it's uh, not at all unusual for people in their 40s or 50s whose family responsibilities have essentially finished for them to uh, go and live the rest of their life as a spiritual life. And it's something I had been considering. And so... uh, it burned its way open. The possibility burned, uh, came, came very uh, immediately uh, forth. So to make a long story short, I ended up going to Asia for about a year and a half and practiced quite ardently, quite diligently. Then I came back to this country and continued in a similar way. If it wasn't for that fire there's really a very strong possibility that I wouldn't be with you here this evening in this way. That huge change was really a great gift that's still unwrapping itself. Not too long after the house burned down, I uh, found this haiku from Basho. Since my house burned down, I have a better view of the rising moon. (laughs) Have you ever had an experience in your life with something or some place or, or even someone that you were attached to or maybe took for granted or something that you felt was important or maybe even essential in your life? Have you ever had the experience in your own life with this thing or this place or this person changing or leaving, not being in your life anymore for some reason? And within a fairly short time, noticing that whole new worlds, so to say, have opened up. As we learn to pay a careful, close, and open-hearted attention to the changing nature of things, just within our own body-mind continuum, letting go of resistance, we'll begin to see this occurring 
in myriad small and sometimes bigger ways over and over again. It's the nature of things. It's the way of things. I had a student who, when she began to connect more deeply with the truth of Anicca and the understanding that she didn't have any control over the unfolding of events, and as she expressed it, she not only saw that though her day never went just as she planned it, she began and she began to truly accept that this was how it is, she also began to see and accept that her aging body was no different than the day, that it too was simply unfolding, undoing according to conditions, and that she had absolutely no control over this either. One evening in a practice interview, she told me that she was beginning her sit each morning before going to work with forgiving her body and forgiving the day before it starts. Because, as she said, it never goes as I plan, hope, expect, dream it to be. Her habit for many years had been one of aversion, mostly irritation or anger at, taking a kind of offensive stance at things, people, events, not going her way. Her early morning forgiveness practice wasn't out of the feeling that the day or her body had or was going to do something wrong and that she needed to forgive them for this. Forgiveness was coming from the softening heart of acceptance for how it is. And in part, this softening heart was forgiving itself for the pain that had been experienced for so many years in hardening against how things are. When she told me about this piece of her practice, I was quite struck by the unusual way that she was using forgiveness, and that, in fact, it was really working for her, helping her to recognize and more deeply accept that there's no control, that things arise, change, and pass away without end. When the mind exists undisturbed in the way, in the way, not in the way, <laughs> nothing can offend. When, and when a thing can no longer offend, it ceases to exist in the old way. When no discriminating thoughts arise, the old mind ceases to exist. To sustain and deepen in and with our practice, to see things as they are, two of the most essential qualities of heart, of mind, that are required are honesty and humility. 
self-deception and clear seeing are mutually incompatible. For instance, in relationship to other people, it doesn't matter if a person notices that I'm feeling and maybe even in some way expressing anger. It doesn't matter if his image of me is shattered. What matters is that you are willing to come face to face with your anger and the awareness of the anger, bringing mindfulness right to the anger or fear or sadness or whatever it is. And this is hard work. A tremendous energy and humility is needed to sustain the observation. To see yourself as you are. And because you see yourself as you are, as you are without judgment, you make no effort to project a different image to yourself or to anybody else. Vimala Thakkar, who was one of Krishnamurti's closest students and who is a very profound and powerful spiritual teacher in her own right, says this. That is the only austerity that is required of an inquirer, the austerity of humility to see things as they are, to see my inner being as it is, good or bad, to observe it as it is, without defending it, without justifying it, without interpreting or judging it, without taking pride in it, and without relegating the responsibility of those states to other people. Humility is the perennial source of energy or freshness. Humility enables you to learn, keeps you pliable, perhaps to the last breath. I hope, she says. The great Thai forest meditation master, Achan Cha, used to tell his monks, it's a good thing I'm not perfect. If I was, you'd get dependent on me for your awakening and not do the absolutely necessary work of looking into yourself. There might be a very subtle aspect of complacency in your practice or the knowing of a degree and a depth of peace and ease that has honestly and truly manifested and been established through your practice and that you're grateful for and that you may have settled for. If we're lucky, if we truly take our life as our practice, at various points along the way, we'll step into or welcome in pieces of life, aspect of our human existence that ask us to go maybe surprisingly deeper than we might deliberately pick or choose, to go deeper into relinquishing aspects of the map, our 
map of the world that still varies from the actual territory of how it is. A few years ago, during a 14-month period of my life, I discovered something about preferences, about picking and choosing, the with mind, the mind that's made up, and the strain and struggle, the pain therein. And I discovered something about the without mind, the heart, the mind that's not made up, that doesn't want anything to be different, that isn't picking and choosing. These weren't new discoveries, but during this time, these understandings showed up from an unexpected and even unsuspected depth. A few years ago, I spent five days with my mother, who was 91 years old at that time. And she was living in a very, very difficult situation, about an hour and a half away from my home in Taos, New Mexico. At the end of my visit, as I was just about ready to walk out the door, I turned around and looked long at her, really fully letting in the whole of the situation into my heart. And then I said to myself, I can't leave her here. I'm taking her home with me. Within an hour, I had her and her most essential belongings packed up and in my car, and we were off. In retrospect, the moment of knowing what must be done and the subsequent hour of activity in response to this knowing was probably as pure a moment as I've had. Simply responding with the clarity, the spontaneity, and the equipoise of the still and empty mind, out of which springs unconditional compassion, the without mind, the heart without preference, no thought of picking and choosing, the heart mind wide open, spacious, no thoughts of the past, not anticipating the future, a mind in those moments not made up about things. And then we were home to Taos, and an unexpected, unsuspected depth of practice ensued. Very quickly it dawned on me that I'd made a commitment to take my mother into my life until death do us part, as I had said to a friend soon after I got home. She couldn't go back to where she'd been, and I couldn't shift her off to a nursing home. So life took a radically new turn, living very closely with another person, and this being happening to be my mother. After living alone for many, many years, in a life filled with practicing and teaching the Dhamma in many different places around the world, and now, all of a sudden, living very closely with someone who needed a great deal of ongoing and increasing amount of caretaking, 
in relationship to all the basics of life that we usually take for granted. Preparing and eating appropriate food, taking medication, washing our bodies, washing our clothes, dressing, toileting, urinating, defecating, communicating, knowing what time of day it is and what that might mean in relationship to sleep and being awake. Though my heart was truly and fully committed to seeing us through this last bit of my mother's life, the with mind, the mind of picking and choosing, the conditional mind, stepped up a few times seemingly out of the depths with such a strength and such a burn that it took me by surprise. What an incredible opportunity to see the contraction, the depth and intensity of the discomfort of of tightening up around my preferences, what I want to do and when I want to do it. What an incredible opportunity to bring the qualities of honesty and humility, to see the depth and the intensity of the discomfort of resistance to how things are, the painful contraction of wanting life to be different than it is. Even though the heart, the mind, are fully committed to being with how it is. And what an incredible opportunity to see the ease, the peace, the peace of mind, peace in the heart, when there's no preference, no picking and choosing, no pull, no yearning, no hoping for, no anger, no fear, no resistance. Just knowing the peace, the ease of being, nothing to become, nothing to get, the without mind, nothing needing to be different than it is, and simply going about the day, our day, our night, from this relationship to things. After 14 months of taking care of my mother, early one morning at the end of the first week of a month-long retreat that Annie and I were teaching at a place in Taos, New Mexico that was about 10 minutes from away from the house that my mother and I were living in, I received a phone call from the caregiver who was with my mother that morning so that I could be at the retreat. In 10 minutes, I was home, my heart meeting my mother, who was no longer alive. 14 months of deep and sustained practice that in some way was a preparation to meet that moment. 14 months of deep and sustained practice coming together, clearly and easily, just simply in place, in a very connected, very present, soft and open way.
during the four days that followed my mother's death, I sat for many hours with the without mind, the heart just simply receiving the way of things. We kept my mother's body at home in her bed for four days, which is illegal, but... (laughs) New Mexico, you can do a lot of things you can't do in other places. The fourth morning being the time when we took her to be cremated, as was her wish. And on that first afternoon uh, after her death, we gave her, my brother, my sister-in-law, and one of the caretakers who'd been helping, gave her a slow, gentle, and loving sponge bath. And we didn't disturb her body. We just let things be, just let them simply unfold just as they were unfolding. And as I said, spending many hours, day and night, in her room with her, barely sleeping, sitting for hours and hours, doing some chanting, reading aloud, some singing, talking to her, talking about her to friends that stopped by, offering their care and paying their respects. As her body and her spirit or life energy or karmic force, whatever term has meaning for you, as all of this changed and moved in its natural course, with moments of sadness, immense gratitude and love, and the deepening, spacious expanse of acceptance, being met and received, all of it, with no preference, no picking and choosing, no pull, no yearning, no hoping for, no anger, no fear, no resistance. Meeting and receiving the fullness of life and the truth of the emptiness, the no-self nature of life which includes and is very much mirrored in the clear light of death, if we can look into the mirror with nothing needing to be different than it is. Being so intimately involved with the last 14 months of my mother's life, and the four days immediately following her death was a great and amazing privilege, the great blessing of a gift, another gift that has continued to unwrap itself in ways that have been and continue to be deeply inspiring and profoundly illuminating. And again from Ajahn Chah. Be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surroundings, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come drink at the pool, and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go. 
but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Can we relinquish our preference of picking and choosing? Can we be with phenomena, whatever it is, just as it is? The truth is lying in wait to be seen, to be known, right in this very moment. Can we begin to see and realize the true nature of things in every kind of birth, in every arising, not needing to add anything and not needing to take anything away? Can we wander into the natural state of the equipoise, of the undisturbed mind, the world outside going on just as it is, Thoughts and feelings arising, changing, coming and going, no different than anything else in the world. Nothing to argue with, nothing to cling to. And I'd like to close the talk with reading uh, some of the same and a little bit more of Sangan's poem. The great way is not difficult if you just don't pick and choose. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. The way is perfect like vast space where nothing is lacking and nothing is in excess. Indeed, it is due to our choosing to accept or reject that we do not see the true nature of things. The wise strive to no goals. The foolish fetter themselves. There is one dharma, not many, Distinctions arise from ignorant clinging. If the mind makes no discriminations, the ten thousand things are, as they are, of one essence. Fathoming the mystery of one essence is to be released from all entanglements. The great way is not difficult if you just don't pick and choose. And let's just sit for a moment.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.